All right, time to invite the kids to come on up front and have a seat. If you're about fifth grade or so and younger, you can come on up. Feel free to bring somebody with you if you'd like, older sibling or mom or dad, somebody else. All right, come on up, find a spot to sit. There's some room over here yet, guys? All right, good to see everyone. All right, I have something to show you to start off with this morning. And here it is. A big plate of food. Doesn't that look great? Don't you just want to grab it and eat it? No, this is just fake food. You wouldn't want to eat this, right? It's just fake. Okay, so we're going to have to use our imagination a little bit. Imagine that this plate is full of your favorite kinds of foods. What are some of your favorite foods? Fruit Loops. Fruit Loops. Yeah. What else? Hamburger. Ooh, hamburger. Uh huh. Spaghetti. Pizza. Hamburger. Hamburgers. Yeah. Good. Hot dogs. Oh, yeah. Lots of good food, right? Lots of good food we can eat. Okay. So imagine this plate is full of your favorite foods. Okay. Now, if this plate is full of your favorite foods just sitting here, but that's all it's doing is just sitting there. Is it really any good to you? Is there any benefit for you if it's just sitting there? Not really, right? What do you have to do in order to benefit for it, from it, in order to enjoy it? Eat it. Yeah, you have to interact with it somehow, right? Eating is part of that. You have to interact with it, right? So there's different things you could do, different ways, actually, that you could engage with it or interact with it. You could look at it, and you could see how wonderful that food looks, right? You could, you could smell it and smell all those wonderful food aromas, right? You could taste it, right? And you could have the delightful tastes in your mouth, right? And then, as was mentioned, you could eat it, right? You could gain that nutritional value from it. You could give it, it could give you energy and strength, right? Yeah, so you can get strength and energy and health from it. But if it just sits there, there's not much benefit, right? You kind of have to interact with it, right? And did you know that the Bible, God's Word, is similar to that? Think about it. If we just put it there and it just sat there, would it have much benefit for us? No. What do we need to do? We have to engage with it. We have to interact with it just like we do with this yummy food, right? And so if it just sits there, it wouldn't affect us. It wouldn't have any effect in our life. They're just like there's wind, it wouldn't grow us in faith and those kind of things, right? And so there, just like there's ways we can interact with a yummy plate of food, there's ways that we can interact with God's Word, right? We can read it, and we can study it, right? We could hear others maybe read it to us, right? We could memorize God's Word, right? Raise your hand if you're in Awana this year. Aren't, aren't you going to be memorizing ver Bible verses in Awana this year? Yeah, so we can memorize God's words. We can sing God's Word. We can hear God's Word preached and taught to us, right? So as we're interacting with God's Word in all of these ways, we should apply those things that we're hearing and learning to our lives, right? To help us put aside sin, 
to help us live for God, to live in holiness and purity before God. And so God uses all these things interacting with his word, the Bible, to help grow us in faith. And then we're able to live more and more to glorify God. And so um, when there's this wonderful plate of food sitting before it, we want to bring it into our lives. We want to engage with it, smell it, and eat it, and taste it, and those kind of things to bring us benefit and joy. And it's similar to God's Word. We should bring God's Word into our lives to read it, to think about it, to memorize it, to hear it preached and taught to us and apply it to our lives so that it would be great benefit to us and that God would be glorified through that. Okay, so Pastor Jeremy's going to come and tell us more about that as he preaches this morning. So you can go back and have a seat. Thanks for coming up. Thanks, Pastor Jeff, for setting me up to have everybody waiting for lunch. And Thank you. That's excellent. It's a good lead-in. That's what we want to do with God's Word. We want to eat of it. We are in uh, 1 Corinthians 5 this morning. We're going to finish up this chapter on discipline. And my plan is to give a quick overview, uh, hit one more subject in this chapter, and then hopefully get into chapter 6. That's my hope. And so uh, we'll try to do that. The context, again, in chapter 5, it's church discipline. There is a man who is in incest. The church so far not only hasn't done anything, but is actually boasting in how tolerant they are. And Paul writes to say, uh, to rebuke their arrogance in verse 2, and to pronounce judgment on the man, to remove him from the fellowship if he remains unrepentant. Paul tells them to do this because in verses 7 and 8, just like leaven and bread, so sin in a church will never remain small. It'll always become pervasive. It will spread throughout the all, a little leaven, leaven's a whole loaf. And because sexual immorality is a sin that we'll see in chapter 6, actually leads people to not inherit the kingdom of God. And we love people. And we honor God, and so he wants them to deal with church discipline. Now, one thing I want to encourage you, in Hebrews 12, Paul writes, uh, or well, I think it's Paul, whoever the author of Hebrews is, writes, um, dealing with the context of sin, that discipline is a good gift of a good father. That's why we've sung some songs this morning here about fatherhood, that even though at the moment, No child likes discipline later on when it is yielded a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Um, We accept it. We're grateful for it. We're thankful for it. And so I want to urge you to accept this. In Proverbs 12.1, we read, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates proof is stupid. That's what the Bible says. I I didn't put that in there. Sorry, Mom. Uh, Proverbs 13.18, Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline. But he who regards reproof will be honor. Again, listen to that. Whoever loves discipline. Whoever loves discipline. I'm not talking here mainly about discipline in the home, but discipline in the church. And I want to urge you to love this issue because of who God is as Father. And so that's what I want. I want to encourage you in that. I want to, I want to talk about how preaching is meant to be disciplined for you. That's going to be the main thing here this morning. Well, uh, let me read. I'm going to read chapter 5 again and go to chapter 8 of verse 6 to get us all of it. It is actually reported among you 
that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of, his, of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Isn't that those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that you are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to be astonished by who you are as Father. Help us to be astonished at the difference between what we have received by your grace and what we actually deserve. Between the state that we are in now by your grace and what we were before your grace. Between the heaven we are bound for and the hell that we deserve. Who made us this different except for you? We were no more ready to receive Christ than anyone else. We could not have loved you if you have not loved us first. We would have been unwilling to turn to Christ if you had not made us willing first. And so God, because of your grace, help us to receive your word eagerly. Help us to love it, to embrace it, to live according to it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, so I said last week, uh, we spent some time in Matthew uh, 18, which lays out in pretty specific detail uh, what church discipline is and the process of it. And I said here that Paul is taking the principles of Matthew 18 and applying them to a specific situation in Corinth, a situation deserving of discipline that the church has 
not only not done, but boasted in not doing. And so Paul is taking a specific text in the Bible and in essence preaching it with specific application to a very concrete example. Are you following with me there? That's an important principle. Paul is taking Scripture words from God, bringing them to a local church, and applying them very specifically to a very concrete example that everybody in the church is aware of. Now, this letter was likely read in front of the church with the people seated right there. Talk about discomfort. So, Paul meant this to be preached, and he meant this to be preached as discipline for that church and as discipline for this man. He meant Matthew 18 to be brought and applied for the sake of that man's soul and for the sake of the holiness and purity and protection of that church. So this helps us understand what Christian preaching is for. So with that in mind, keep your finger here and I want you to flip over a few books to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here we receive the uh, most clear, straightforward, plain, unvarnished teaching in the Bible of what preaching is and what it's for. So Paul, writing to a local pastor uh, who is pastoring a church in Ephesus uh, and meant for wider distribution, this is likely Paul's last letter meant to give all the churches to set them up for how we are to do church. And here's the thing. This is the thing. I I charge you, Paul writes. Presence of God, the presence of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing his kingdom, right? I I charge you in the presence of Almighty God who is going to judge you. Here's the one thing. Preach the word. Preach the word. I want you to take God's word and I want you to, if everything else fails, here's the one thing you should be found doing faithfully. Preach the word. Now, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say preach the word and then leave us hanging. Okay, how? What is it for? Preach the word in any season, in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Preach the word. How? Reprove in your preaching. Rebuke my people in your preaching. Exhort my people in your preaching with complete patience and teaching. Why? Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That 
those last two lines there, inside of me right now, I want to cry. There is nothing more damning to people than hearing preaching that tickles their ears and leads them to hell. Every week, you come here to hear God's Word preached. And woe to me and any other preacher who fears you more than they fear God. So what is preaching for? What are those three adjectives describing? Those words are all discipline words, aren't they? All three of them. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That's what preaching is. And all of those words are in the discipline realm. What is Christian preaching for? What is it for? It's for our discipline. That's that's why you come here every Sunday to come under the preaching of God's Word and receive reproof, buke, and exhortation. That's what it's for, brothers and sisters. Now, it is uncommon for us to come here for that. It's even less common to understand that this is what preaching is for. I think we want preaching to be inspirational. We want preaching to make us leave feeling good about ourselves. The last thing we often want when we come is preaching that rebukes us. Is preaching that reproves us. Is preaching that causes us to be convicted by our own sin and leave here prayerfully before God, confessing sin and pleading with Him to help us to not do it and be more pleasing to Him. That's what preaching is for. That's what preaching is for. So it should come as no surprise then when we read the other letters in the New Testament that we consistently find the apostles reproving, rebuking, and exhorting God's people. It should come as no surprise then when you read the prophets who take God's word and apply them to God's people that they're consistently disciplining God's people through their preaching. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5. So preaching is a paradox. It isn't a safe space. That's a thing today, right? These safe spaces. This is not a safe space. This is not a safe space for you. God, your Father, brings you here week after week in order to discipline you with His Word because He loves you. And yet it is the safest of spaces because God loves us so that he will not let us go on in that which would destroy us. It's a paradox, isn't it? There is no refuge, there should be no refuge for your sin in the preaching of God's word. 
And yet there is a refuge in the preaching of God's word from the destruction of your sin. And, 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 and you know this to be true in every realm of your life, right? The book of Proverbs says that the best kind of wounds are from a friend. Or that the best kind of a friend is the friend who's willing to wound you. To call you out in your sin. We know that the best kind of teacher you've ever had is a teacher that demands growth from you. That is not a pushover. That has good discipline in her classroom. I can still remember Miss Babcock in third grade jumping up on her table and, her, and, and, and yelling at us because we were out of control. She, I respect her more than any other teacher I ever had because she disciplined us. And everyone knows that if you have a father who loves you and plays with you but who disciplines you, you respect that father. This is true in every realm of your life. If you have a boss who is willing to make you better by telling you where you fall short, you respect him or her. You do not respect the boss who lets you show up late for work repeatedly and never says anything to you. You know why? Because you end up getting fired and a boss didn't have any kind of courage to care for you. We read that God's word is a double-edged sword that pierces to our inmost being. And we think that we should come on Sunday morning and be comfortable. God's word is a double-edged sword that pierces to the deepest parts of our being. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound comfortable. There is a reason why people leave churches, and it's because they don't want that. They do not want that. So you have three choices as God's word is brought to discipline you. Provided it's faithful to the text. Provided it's accurate to the text. And even provided that it's done in love. You have three choices. You can ignore it. Some people come week after week hearing God's word preached are just hard to it. They'll sit here and sing the songs. They'll sit here month after month after month and they're just hard to it. They will never ask, what was that for me? Where is God pressing his finger into which wound my soul or which sin in my life? It's just hard to it. Or you can complain. You can complain about others. You complain about the preacher. People do that. Or you can go home before God and you can confess sin, and you can get with somebody else and deal with it, and you can week after week be tender to God's Word, be soft to God's Word, have a heart that's warm to God's Word, and see what He has for you here. And I think that's the safest place for you. A pastor that I greatly admire says this, soft preaching makes hard hearts. Hard preaching makes soft hearts. So I want to urge you to be willing to have God's word preached and specifically by it. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5. <clears throat> now here's the thing. I don't think any of you would say, I don't want God's word preached. We all say, we all want preach the word. That's why you're in a church like this. If you didn't want the word preached, you can go to some liberal mainline where you hear good stories and anecdotes and fluff. You can do that. There's plenty of those churches. There's lots of them. You want the word preached. 
But sometimes I think we neglect that the word preach means rebuke, reproof, and exhort. That is, we take the text and we apply it specifically. That's what rebuke and reproof and exhortation is. It's not a general, it's a very specific. One of the things that preachers should do is they should know their people. We should get to know you. We should be involved. Elders and pastors should be involved in your lives. I think this is one of the great things about moving to a new church and being able to work alongside of you so much. Because uh, your guard's off there. Got hammers in our hands and we're just talking. And I get to hear stuff. Or you come in for counseling and something's going on in your life and I get to hear stuff. Or you're meeting with an elder and we get to hear things. And as we hear things consistently, repeatedly, you should expect those things to show up in a sermon. Because I know if I've heard it five times last month, there's probably 50 things, 50 of those things happening in our church. Because that's what we do. We care and we bring the word specifically, and that's what Paul is doing here. Notice how specific he's getting. He doesn't leave it general. He takes Matthew 18 and goes right to a very specific, concrete reality in that church. He doesn't just preach Matthew 18 generally and then hope they get it. You understand what I'm going at there? One thing Paul could have done is he could have said, hey, don't forget Matthew 18 church at Corinth. Don't forget when there's a brother in sin that you should go to him. And if he doesn't listen, two or three witnesses should go to him. And if he doesn't listen... He doesn't just kind of hope they get it. He like subtlety is not preaching. Paul's not being subtle. He's not just keeping the the word abstract, hoping that they can see where he's going, hoping that they get it. No, he he doesn't leave them guessing. He takes it right home to a very specific, concrete reality because he loves them. Because he cares for them. Because that's what preaching is. Now, we don't have anything like this that I'm aware of going on. And I just want to urge you um, that, that we all, as Christians, need God's word preached like this. The Christian life is one of growth over time to become more like Christ. It's what you and I desire. We want to live more pleasing to God. We want every five years to look back at our life and, and see growth. You look back every five years ago, what a schmuck I was five years ago. And ten years later, you look back and say, oh, what a miserable wretch I was. And you just keep what you want that kind of growth. You don't want to be the same. And one of the reasons Christians remain perpetually immature is it's because the preaching of God's word is so uh, weak. Preachers fear to apply the word specifically. And you know, there are things that I talk about not infrequently here. I bring up disciplining of children frequently. We've got a lot of parents with little kids in our church. This is a major biblical issue. It's something that our culture hates. So I talk about it not infrequently. I bring up the issue of male and female not infrequently because that is a major issue in our church. A few weeks ago, I brought up the issue in relation to sexual morality from 1 Corinthians 5, and I was talking about how we as 
parents and as a church, we subtly, I don't think we mean to do this, but we exalt a young person getting an education. We exalt a young person getting a job and delaying marriage. And we unintentionally put young people in harm's way of sexual morality. You delay marriage and you, and you say date for five years, be engaged for five years. And I can tell you, I guarantee sexual morality and fornication are happening there. Because we push it off and we push it off and we push it off. That's what we need. That's true. That's happening in our culture. I see it as a pastor all the time. And so we want to do this. I, I, I want to urge you to want that. Now, in Second Timothy 4, Paul says, preach the word, rebuke and exhort and correct or, or, or reprove. And then he says, with all patience and teaching. And uh, I often get the reprove and rebuke and exhort part well. I, don't sometimes, I sometimes miss out on the patient part. So I know that. I'm, I'm aware of it. There is a need for patience. All right, so that's 1 Corinthians 5. Paul is taking a specific biblical text and applying it towards church discipline. And I want us to love that. Now, he goes right into chapter 6 then. And he seems to completely change subjects, but he doesn't. So in chapter 5, he's dealing with a specific instance of a man who has his father's wife. Isn't that gross, by the way? Isn't that just disgusting? And the church hasn't done anything to love that man, and he calls him to do it. And then he applies it at the end of the chapter towards how the church should be judging those in sin because we love them and we want them to come back. Then he goes right into this issue of believers who are suing each other. Now, what I want you to catch here uh, is this word judge. Verse 2 of chapter 6. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to judge trivial cases? Verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? He's picking right up and continuing on what he left off with in chapter 5. Look at 5.12. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So he's taking this concept of discipline and judgment within the church and now taking it to another issue that the church is getting wrong. Because Christ said, make right judgments. Because Christ gave in Matthew 18, the church, the responsibility and authority to make judgments within the church. And sometimes we as a church get it wrong. We are constantly poking at the world outside, making judgments, how vile and wicked and blah, blah, blah. And we refuse to do that inside the church. And Paul is here saying that's supposed to be exactly the opposite. God has given us authority together to make judgments. And then, instead of Christians appealing to other Christians for help in, in dealing with issues of sin... We appeal to those out either get to the church to deal with issues of sin within the church. You see, they're getting exactly opposite on both extremes. They refuse to make judgments inside the church, and they go for judgments to those outside the church. So Paul is continuing on the same exact theme in chapter 6, and he's applying it to the specific issues 
of two brothers, maybe two sisters, maybe a brother and a sister, uh, have a grievance against one another. He doesn't specify what the grievance is. I'm sure that church was very much aware of it. You know when conflict is happening in the church between people, everybody knows about it. You can see it. So there's a grievance. And instead of going to the church to settle the dispute, they go outside of the church. And we see something spectacular here again. We see the crazy authority that God has given his people. And he goes to the end of time here. Now, in uh, biblical terminology, we typically, when we're talking about end time stuff, stuff that deals with after Christ's second coming, we talk about eschatology. And so Paul goes to eschatology here in, in verses 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you know that? God's saints at the end of time will, will play the role of judges. Right? Even more in verse 3, at the end of time, we'll judge angels. So that's coming. That's our future destination. We're Supreme Court justices judging the world and even more, judging angels. And then Paul wants to say, if that's true in the future, don't you think you can settle a minor dispute here amongst God's people? Do you not know who you are as God's people? Do you not know the responsibility and authority God has given you as God's people? So here again, we meet the reality that you and I can sin in one of two directions. We can sin by being overly aggressive, by being harsh, by being judgmental. We can sin by being jerks. And opposite, we can sin by being passive. We can sin by wrongly taking up our authority, and we can sin by not taking up our authority at all. And I would submit to you that in our day, the besetting direction of sin is to abdicate our responsibility rather than to abuse it. Now, all abuse of authority is absolutely wrong. Last week I brought up the issue of, uh, in Matthew 18, when somebody's in sin, a brother who saw the sin should go to him. If that doesn't work, if that doesn't produce repentance, then you should take two or three others. And the two or three others, there aren't just random two or three others, it's two or three other eyewitnesses. And afterwards, somebody came up and said, so if, if like somebody in our church was abused sexually, let's say, and there was only one eyewitness that we should never bring that. That's not what I'm saying at all. If there is any abuse, if somebody is abusing their authority, if somebody is abusing their strength, that needs to be brought up immediately. Okay, So any kind of abuse, it, need, it needs to be brought to light. And the next thing that we'll do, if it's a criminal issue, is we'll bring it to the authorities. We will not hide it here. We will not play with it here. We will not blame the victim here. We will take it very seriously here. But the issue 
Paul is getting at here isn't abuse of authority, but lack of using it at all. Passivity. Passivity. Rather than take up their authority as judges, we completely lay it down. And then, even worse, we take uh, that responsibility and give it to people who are not Christian a bit. So the real issues in this aren't the issue of lawsuits in of themselves, but the issue of the church not exercising the authority, and even the more so, the church going to unbelievers to get the judgment that we could easily get from believers. So, um, we're going to get into this more next week, but I wanted to set the stage for this. So this is still dealing, in essence, with discipline. And so let's conclude um, with verses 7 and 8, and then apply it to the gospel. So Paul says to have lawsuits at all is already a defeat. And in verse 8, wouldn't it be better, or verse 7, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And this does get to Christian humility. I think sometimes we're like the uh, servant in the parable that goes to the king with this unrepayable debt, this crazy amount of money owed, and the king completely forgives the guy. And then that servant goes out in the hallway and has a fellow servant who owes him 10 bucks and won't forgive the debt and has the man thrown into jail. That's what's functioning here. Christians are those who have been forgiven sin of infinite consequence against an eternally holy God. Your and I sin against our Creator is deserving of eternal punishment because God is an eternal being. Deserving of eternal punishment in hell because God is an eternally just God. And He has forgiven all of it. He hasn't just swept under the rug. He sent us on a die for it. And that amount, that depth of forgiveness ought to spill out into how you treat others who sin against you. That's where Paul's going here. People who know the gospel forgive. People who know the gospel overlook wrong. People who know the gospel are, in some instances, not at all, willing to be defrauded, to suffer wrong. Because God in Christ took all of our sin to the cross and suffered in our place. The just for the unjust. The innocent for the guilty. See, the gospel always spills out into every aspect of your life. You can't help it. If you believe the gospel, it changes everything. And the main thing it changes is how you are willing to be treated by others. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to see, to feel, to know the reality of your fatherly love and care for us. How in Christ we have everything so that we'd be willing to receive the correction of your word preached. 
that we'd be willing to take up the responsibility and authority you've given us in the church, and we'd be willing to be defrauded and wronged by others because of what Christ has suffered in our place. And so God, help us to grow as your people. God, may this word work in our lives such that we might live more pleasing and honorable to you in all of our ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.